Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. Don't judge your personal success and failure on things that are not in your control. Like all we can do is just do the best with the cards that we're dealt with. And sometimes the best move is to fold. But that doesn't mean that I'm a bad player or that I am a failure. It just means that I try to make the best of the cards I got dealt and it didn't work. But that's not a reason to give up or take it personally. Welcome to Full Comp a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Katie Pope is one of those success stories you read about and you're wrought with envy. In 2019, seven years after opening Blue Star Donuts, the business had 11 retail shops, 100 employees, and total annual sales of $7 million. She was riding high going into the pandemic, but then the music stopped. Today, Katie shares her path to success, what it took to get there initially, and the extraordinary effort required to crawl her way back from the brink. My background is, I have a degree in neurological psychology, so. Mm. Right. Same, yeah, same, totally of obvious. course. Yeah. Obvious, <laughs> trajectory the most there. common <laughs> response I get. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I was really a science nerd and kind of on the PhD track, and then in college, unfortunately, tragedy struck and my parents died, and it kind of like hurt, you know, had me pause and think about what I want to do with my life. And I decided to take a gap year before pursuing a PhD and take a year to backpack around the world. And I went to almost a dozen countries. I mean, China, India, South Africa, Namibia, Tanzania, Sicily, Guatemala, I don't know, a bunch of places, Thailand, Cambodia. And it was, it gave me a lot of time to think and put a lot of things in perspective for me. And I decided on that trip that I wanted to be a business owner. I wanted to come back and do something impactful and give back to my community. I didn't know like what kind of business that would be yet, just that that was the path I wanted to take with my life. And so being a good student, I thought I needed to go to school to learn how to be a business owner. So I came back to Portland and enrolled in an MBA program. Spent about a year in that and realized like, this isn't teaching me how to be a business owner. This is more like a grooming program for Fortune 500 companies, but it's not really teaching me how to be an entrepreneur. And around then I met my first business partner who at the time was a fine dining chef and had opened a couple, you know, pretty positively acclaimed restaurants in the Portland area. And this was 2008, 2009, right? And so like the, the big recession and people suddenly couldn't afford 
to eat out a lot anymore. Certainly not fifteen hundred bucks a head at the nicer restaurants. But the what I would call like the foodie revolution was starting to happen, where people were becoming a lot more conscientious about where their food comes from, the quality of their food, wanting to be a little bit more experimental. People still wanted high quality food and flavors, but they just couldn't afford those higher ticket prices. Right. So we also kind of noticed that at one of his restaurants, a what I would call recession proof, quote unquote, item on the menu was the burger. It's comforting, it's familiar, and people are going to order a burger no matter what. But if you look at the spectrum of the burger market, on the low end, you've got McDonald's, Burger King, pretty cheap, poor quality food. And then the next jump is really a bistro burger, where you go into a restaurant, you sit down, it's table service, it comes with a side, it's like 15, 20 bucks a tip. There's nothing really in between that. And so we thought like, well, hey, here's this great recipe that you have that people love. What if we shrink it? So it's still the same high quality ingredients, but now it's more slider sized. So it's more like four bucks and just build a fast casual concept around that. So you're saving on overhead and a lot of other bigger expenses that come with running a full service restaurant, as you know, and just have like a super simple concept, just focus on burgers. Like that's kind of like in and out, right? I'm from California and just like a really super yeah, yeah. streamlined menu beef and you have chicken and you have fish. Those are all three different kinds of proteins. They cook at different temps. They require different cooking surfaces. You got to worry about cross-contamination and some kid behind the counter who's got this ticket of 10 burgers and two or chickens and five or be, you know, you're just not going to time that and have it come out consistently to the type of quality that we were pursuing. So it's like, no, we're just going to focus on one thing and do it really well and just focus on burgers and we can teach the staff how to cook to temp. Like we'll make them thick, like a hockey puck size. So you can still temp burgers. Like that's one thing we can teach consistency on. Mm-hmm. And then have a side of truffle fries and some beer and soda and, and that's it. So with my background in psychology, I did a bunch of reading up on consumer behavior and restaurant psychology research. Like, McDonald's and Burger King Carl's Jr., they have all done such a fantastic job at branding over the years that the colors red, white, and yellow, as you are driving along the freeway or down a road or whatever, if you see an establishment in the peripheral of your vision with those colors, you know immediately that it's a fast food restaurant. You just do. Your brain has been conditioned to understand without any other communication, words, anything else. Those colors mean that. And those colors were chosen specifically because our, the periphery of our vision picks those shades, red, yellow, and also neon green, up the fastest. And it creates like this effect in your brain of, you know, warning, emergency, whatever. You're going to notice it right away. My mind is blown already. <laughs> and we're like five minutes into this. I told you I have a dart. So I'm thinking like, okay, why reinvent the wheel? We don't need to go crazy with some like green or blue or modern color. We are going to be a fast food, fast casual establishment. So let's use those colors, the red, white, blue, a little bit of yellow and the branding. And again, I also believe in being, let's just, people are busy. You got to get straight to the point. What's the name of your establishment? I don't want to call it ethereal and you serve milkshake. Like just say what you mean, say what it is. So little big burger, that was the name we came up with. Again, like that hockey puck, but still slider, still slider size. Sure. And it was 
Yes, a little big bird. That's exactly what you're getting. That's the name. The name says it all. People are going to understand that, whatever your education is. I wanted to experience growing and selling a business. That was kind of a personal ambitious of mine. I wanted to just have that experience and see if that was something I could challenge myself to do. So this was 2008, 2009. 2009, couldn't get an investor to save my life. No one's going to take a risk on restaurants. All my family and friends, don't do it. The statistics in opening restaurants are terrible. You're going to lose all your money. I mean, it was bad. And I had a little bit of money left from when my parents died. So I was going to kind of like bet the farm opening up this concept. And I had to sign a personal guarantee on that lease too. And I remember sitting in the corner, literally with this lease, shaking the pen in my hand, because I knew that if I did this, it was a really big risk. And I was walking away from all the support of everybody that loved me in my life. Felt it was really lonely, but I wanted to try. I wanted to see if I could do it. So yeah, went ahead and signed it, bet the farm and opened in 2010. And it was just, I think, partly right time, right place, right concept. It just was a cash cow. It was a great success. We learned a lot, obviously. I mean, you know what it's like opening a restaurant. It's hard, man. Like yeah. just working seven days a week, like go home, pass out on your clothes, wake up, go back to work, like get my hair washed and my lunch break. <laughs> <laughs> but it taught me that keeping a concept super simple, super focused helps with margins, controlling costs. It helps with volume because you're able to get that much product made faster when you're not trying to make a million different things. It saves on inventory because you don't have all these different, especially in the food industry, things spoiling or expiring. It was just like a really simple, beautiful little concept. And it was a huge cash flow positive that cash flow allowed very quick expansion. And it was, again, kind of right timing because the industry, well, the economy was starting to recover 2010, 2011, and landlords were really desperate to get concepts back up and running in their buildings, kind of like right now, especially in these cities where the pandemic hit really hard and there's been a lot of devastation. Landlords are getting, they're pretty desperate to get concepts back and some activity in life back in their buildings. So they're offering tenant improvement allowance. And when you're building out a restaurant, there's a lot of upfront costs with the construction costs. And it depends on how much existing infrastructure like HVAC and plumbing electrical is already there. How much do you have to put in? How much of an aesthetic facelift do you have to do? And if the landlord is willing to front you tenant improvement allowance, you know, that really helps offset that construction cost. So maybe the landlord will put in 25 grand, maybe 50, and then We could use our cash flow to help cover the rest of that. And it just allowed us to expand really quickly. Once the brand was proved as like, okay, this concept is going to work. It's got legs. It's popular. Operations are streamlined. This is definitely something that you can scale. Now we want to go ahead and start staking out territory where we know like the hot places, the up and coming places, the high traffic places are going to be. And then find a spot, a good spot with a landlord that's willing to put up some money. And by doing that, we were able to scale to eight locations in five years. 
That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, break even is a dream for most of us. And you scaled a brand through a singular vision in half a decade. That's incredible. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was fun. Fast and furious and fun. But that cash flow also helped us start trying out other fast casual concepts to see if they would work too. Boxer Ramen was kind of like a fast casual upscale ramen concept. Son of a Biscuit was a fried chicken concept. That one unfortunately didn't really work out. And Blue Star Donuts was another concept that was born out of that time. And some of them worked, some of them didn't. Learned a lot. I think out of all the concepts, Blue Star is my favorite. I think that branding concept has the potential to be a legacy company, something that's around for generations, but it requires a very different scaling path. And so I ended up just selling either outright or my interest in all my other concepts so that I could focus on Blue Star 100% of the time. I saw when you launched Blue Star. Oh, that's right. You were there for the early days. Oh, I was. I was. And I saw this complete thought. I don't know how else to explain it, but you walk into a restaurant and you're like, oh, they get it. They did it all. And then you walk into (laughs) others and you can tell that this is missing or that's off or, you know, you're trying to thread this needle. And you did such an excellent job of it that when you walk into Blue Star, when you see the line as you approach Blue Star, it is a perfect brand. If there was ever such a thing, it most definitely is. What did that branding strategy look like? Was there a branding team involved? Because, I mean, most of us are just slapping shit together. It was me, my business partner at the time. Yeah. Talk to me about that process. I will. And the way I love coming up with branding around concepts. And so along my journey, at one point, I was in art school for a little while, too, and only for a year, but learned some useful kind of tools and tricks in that time. And one thing that I really enjoyed doing coming up with a concept is thinking about like, okay, what's the aesthetic that we're trying to communicate with this? How do you want to make people feel when they walk in? Do you want them to feel like, oh, this is my neighborhood joint and I want to feel comfortable and at ease. Do you want to convey a sense of like health and wellness if you're like a smoothie place? Do you want to convey like something dark and sexy, like a steakhouse? So just thinking, starting with like, okay, how do we really want people to feel when they walk in? And then thinking about that type of aesthetic And then honestly, just like looking at Google images and start looking at other brands like, okay, Google sexy restaurant interior or whatever. And then coming across images and thinking like, oh, I really like that wood paneling or I really like this type of booth. And then just start screen grabbing different images and creating a folder so that I can be flipping through it visually to start then refining like, okay, it's, it's like putting together a vision board. I really like these tones. I like this type of trim or this kind of finish. I really like this neon style. And maybe it has nothing to do with the restaurant industry. Maybe it's like a cool clothing concept or glassware, cars, or who knows. But just like starting to capture, I like what they did with this tone. I like that. I like this. And then having that start build out what the aesthetic of the concept is going to be. And then again, when I think about naming a company and naming the brand, I'm a really big believer in just like say what it does, say something in the name about what you are or the essence of what you are trying to sell. 
And for us, obviously, you know, donuts, but then in the name you wanted to communicate something is these are going to be gourmet donuts, not just right. average. These are going to be like handmade brioche and we make all of our fillings and glazes from scratch. And, and so how do we convey this expectation of excellence and thinking like, okay, like award-winning trophy, gold star, blue star, that just kind of blue ribbon, blue star. I think initially the first draft was blue ribbon donuts, but then blue star donuts just had a better ring to it. And honestly, it sounds kind of American. There's just something yeah, it does. about the brand and the way that it looks and sounds is like, oh, this like clearly feels like a very American brand. I don't know when you hit it, it's like, that's it. Like son of a biscuit. That was such a great name for a fried chicken donut joint. And I loved the brand and I loved everything about it, but it just, it didn't work for different reasons. Yeah. Prior to the pandemic, I could barely use my iPhone. I'm a restaurateur, not a tech guru. But over the last two years, we've seen that tech can play a vital role in helping us make more money and save money. And that tech can show up at some pretty unlikely places, like your kitchen sink. Dawn Professional is a detergent and degreaser that can help reduce your labor expense and your overhead on cleaning supplies through leveraging the latest technological innovation in cleaning products. Dawn Professional Multi-Service Heavy Duty Degreaser is specifically formulated to cut grease two times faster versus the leading food service degreasers. While Dawn Professional Manual Pot and Pan Dish Detergent cleans 58% more pots and pans per sink, reducing sink changeover versus the leading competitor's professional dish soap. Save time and money by upgrading to Dawn Professional Manual Pot and Pan Dish Detergent and Dawn Professional Multi-Service Heavy-Duty Degreaser from PNG Professional. And so you open, lines out the door, perpetual lines out the door. What was your marketing strategy in rolling out that brand that created <laughs> that level of excitement in the community? This was the early days of social media. This is like, I see, Bluestar launched in 2012. And Instagram was like just kind of becoming a thing, especially for our demographic. And donuts are food porn. It's a very visual medium. And Instagram was just like right time, right place for all of the synergy to come together. And so just like posting these very sexy photos of donuts being made, donuts we had available that day, we built up a pretty decent Instagram following organically very quickly. And there was a lot of great word of mouth. I'm a big believer in word of mouth. I think that it's so hard to measure that, which is why it's hard for companies to invest in it. But if people are being treated well in your establishment and they have a great experience, they're going to tell everybody about it. And they're going to tell people in ways that Google Analytics doesn't capture. They're going to be at the hair salon telling Susie about it with all the other ladies listening. And, and or like the kids are going to be telling their parents about it and their parents tell their golf friends. Or There's just like this word of mouth that happens that's really difficult to try and capture and analyze. But then you see it pay off. And I see it in the shops when people come in and like, oh, so-and-so told me I had to come here. You know, or, oh my gosh, my daughter has been talking about this, blah, blah, blah. Or Susie at the hair salon said, I have to, I hear this, I see it in person. 
And so we really try to focus more of the effort on like, let's provide an excellent customer experience and really focus on hiring the right fits, treating them well, paying them well, and training them up in our hospitality standards. And there's something about that business from all the other types of restaurants I've had is donuts make people happy. You know, it's a treat. It's sugar. There's a different expectation around it than somebody coming in to sit down and dine or somebody who's hangry and in a rush and has four hungry kids. It's ceremonial. Yeah, yeah. It's a different consumer expectation, a different mindset, and an immediate sugar high. (laughs) So (laughs) people are just in a better mood and they're happier and everybody is just, it's a happy business to be. It's nice to have a business that brings more happiness to the world and it attracts a different type of people, which I think is interesting psychologically. And what was the growth strategy? So you open one, it's doing incredibly well. What was the plan for two, three, four, five? And how has that plan evolved over time? That is a really good question because this concept has ended up being totally different from, I think, what we thought it would be. It's not fast casual. And the issue is that it's more artisan or boutique or whatever catch word you want to say, because Everything's made by hand and it's a different, like pastry is a lot different from line cook. Honestly, it's chemistry. It's like chemistry and physics and like air pressure. There's so many different factors that go into it. And you really need like a high level person executing the recipes. And so, especially like the brioche takes 18 hours to make. We're making these custom glazes and these custom fillings. And so... We opened the first shop. It was clear the concept had legs. It was very popular. And so then, so we were thinking like, okay, well, the next shop, we learn from our mistakes and we'll make it a little bit bigger and the kitchen bigger. But the plan was we're going to be still making everything from scratch at each site. And we learned really quickly that that is so hard to do consistently because with recipes like ours, one little tweak. It's like a game of telephone, right? Like one person starts rolling out the dough a little bit differently and then somebody else learns from them and they start doing it differently. And then suddenly you have two totally different products and you're like, how do we get here? So it's like, okay, no, we have to have a central commissary kitchen where this very high level chef is really like controlling the recipes and making sure that they're consistently executed. So then it's like, okay, we're going to start opening more locations, but then the next locations are just going to be retail only. No, they won't have kitchen on site. We call them satellite shops because there's no production kitchen. The good thing about that is they can be a smaller footprint. So you can go into more A-class real estate where like in the super more high-end neighborhoods because instead of 2,000 square feet, you really only need like 800. So rent's going to be a lot more manageable. And donuts, you know, people aren't hanging out like they do at a restaurant or a bar. For the most part, they're all just taking them to go. Sure. Maybe if they sit, hang out for a couple of minutes, catch up with a friend or whatever, but they're not hanging out all day. So we don't need as much space for a dining room. You only need like a couple, two tops and some counter seating. And that's about it. Well, so how did you feel rolling into the pandemic? I'm sure like the rest of us, right? Like fucking great. 
bulletproof. Things are going really well. But how would you objectively looking back, how would you evaluate like the overall state of your business rolling into the pandemic? Like with clear eyes, right? Hindsight being 2020. Absolutely. You had this like economic trajectory that's off the charts. And 2019 was a hell of a year. The first couple of months of 2020, we were going to blow 2019 out of the water. Can you talk to me about what you were doing during that time? Because I've never known you to be a restaurant manager. You've always been a restaurant tour. You've always worked on the business. And if you were working in the business, it was with greater purpose. And so prior to the pandemic, what did your role look like? What were you doing every day? It was mostly about refining the model. How do we, I mean, we had amazing margins and it was mostly about investing in the people. I really am passionate about training leadership. I think it was a couple of years before that we had come across Traction, the EOS entrepreneurial yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm operating a, I'm system. I'm a huge advocate. Yep. Me too. It was a nine day difference. And so like that just really helped us get so much of this important structure and foundation in place. It was really just honestly kind of at the point of fine tuning. We have very distinct high and slow seasons in Portland. High season is just like crazy balls of the wall. The majority of our margins are profit at that time. And then slow season is a little bit more like take a breath, reevaluate. Let's figure out like what systems really need to be improved. Do some leadership retreats, that kind of stuff. That was really kind of what my job. And then, you know, lots of like public speaking and being invited to sit on boards advisory boards or other industry boards, trying to give back to the community, doing a lot of student talks, doing a lot of EO type things and educational events. So yeah, that was kind of what my life looked like through pandemic. And then let's flash forward a bit and say, rather than discussing, I guess, the more difficult parts of the pandemic itself, what did you take away from it? What did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about your business and, and the best way to operate that business? I think my biggest takeaway is that trying to save a business is infinitely harder than starting one and growing one. And that was something that I had not really experienced to that degree before. And it almost broke me. I mean, it took some years off for sure. What were the blind spots in your business that you realized when the pandemic hit? I mean, I'm an optimist, right? That's why I'm a business owner is because... Sure, we all are. I, I mean, especially in I this industry, right? I there's always a solution to be found. That's just my nature. We're always leasing someone else's failed business, right? <laughs> Hoping for a better result. <laughs> right? Yeah. Some way to look at it. I did not understand or believe how ruthless people will be when they smell that you're losing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like having partnerships with landlords where great tenant, never late, never giving you a cause for anything ever been highly transparent, communicative, honest. Obviously this is like a long-term business partnership. Let's work with each other. And having them go full ballistic, I'm suing you for $2 million, like locking you, like just, I'm going to destroy you type that sheer level of when you're down, I'm going to kick you. That kind of 
this is with the bank, you know, having had a great relationship again, like great client, everything. And then as soon as you're down, just like a switch flips and they're out for blood. And that was heartbreaking and infuriating to me. Yeah. So on top of like trying to like save your business and all of your jobs and stuff. And that was really an eye opener for me and a painful lesson. How did you save the business? I'm really grateful for belonging to EO and having this network of industry professionals around the world and just like having these message boards and chats. And I remember seeing in China, I remember the EO people talking about what was starting to happen. And then Italy, remember like Italy was the next and Europe and seeing what was happening. And I just thought, this is going to be bad, especially with the government leadership we had in place at the time. And I just knew our industry was going to get screwed and there was going to be these waves of openings and closures and it was going to be completely mismanaged. And at the time, my business was 100% retail focused. You have to physically come into the shops to pick it up and take away. And everybody's like, oh, with donuts, you know, you can just do delivery. Delivery, maybe on a good day, accounts for 10% of your business. Even if you double that, it's like even triple, it's still not enough to cover your expenses. It's not enough to keep all those people employed. That's not a business. And so I just knew like, we have to pivot. We have to figure out some way to be, get our product in grocery stores because that is going to stay open from what I've seen around the world. That is where people are going to be at. We need to be where the people are at. We need to figure out how to get where the customers are going to be. So I think we shut down on March 16th. And the next day, I just cried my eyes out. I mean, I was so distraught. And then the day after that, I don't know if you were part of the group at that time, but one of our our EO restaurant members told this story. It's a buddy of mine from Texas. He's like, all right, so on the Colorado Plains, there's herds of cows and buffalo. And when a big storm is coming, they can smell it and the cows smell it and they start panicking because it's going to be like a thunder and lightning storm, very scary. And they start as a herd running away from the storm. Cows are not very fast. So the storm catches up with them and it stays with them as they're running. And it just prolongs their suffering because they're now running with the storm and it prolongs the amount of distress and suffering they're in. Buffaloes, on the other hand, they smell a storm coming and they turn as a group and run towards it. And they run towards the storm and then they run through it. And it minimizes the amount of pain and suffering that they have to be in. And I don't know what it was about hearing that story at that time, but I was like, I want to be a buffalo. I don't want to be a cow. I want to be a buffalo. God damn it, I want to be a buffalo. Like we have to do something quickly. Otherwise, this is just going to prolong our pain and suffering. And I don't want to sit around and be afraid. So next day I called chef and I was like, chef, all right, get back in the kitchen. We got to figure something out. So we just started doing R&D. Like, okay, how do we make our product something that can be like bite size, that can be in uh, packaging, you know, because consumers wanted everything packaged. How do we make it a little more shelf stable and just started testing and testing I reached out to my business contacts to get introductions to all the head grocery bakery buyers in the area. And I, um, (laughs) so entrepreneur of me, I kind of fibbed a little bit. I was like, Hey, 
they have this great grocery product we're about to launch and I can get you on the list if you want. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you know, sign us up. So it turns out that a lot of our donut types, the buttermilk old fashioned and the cake donuts do really well with freezing and thawing with very few tweaks to the recipes. So what we did was we made donut hole versions of our most popular donut flavors and those types and then box them and then flash froze them. And then the, they get transported to the grocery stores frozen. They keep them in their cold storage. And then in the morning, they'll pull from the storage and thaw. And then they have like a three-day shelf life. And it's like they're just fresh made because we're doing that flash freezing process. So I think we were in our first grocery store April 2nd. So we had like a 10-day turnaround from close to getting a new product in the grocery stores. And then obviously that's a whole nother business to figure out and learning curve. And like, is it still going to have legs? You know, what if things return to normal? And it turns out it did. Like, it's really popular. The margins are awesome. We're learning so much about distributors and wholesale and wholesale food products. And it's now turned us into more of an omni-channel business because we have different revenue types coming in that will make us more stable and secure over the long run. So I, I'm really happy that it worked out the way that it did because it's, I think, just made our, our company that much stronger. And yeah, hopefully more catastrophe proof in the future. <laughs> that was going to be my question is, I mean, obviously the pandemic made us all more resilient as restaurateurs, but it really sure. does seem like at the end of the day, you ended up with a more sustainable business model, this kind of all weather, yes. all season. I mean, yes. I would assume even in Portland during the months that the retail locations are slow, that you're still yeah. cranking in the grocery stores. Yes, yes, exactly. Right. And now there's more brand recognition and there's more brand information in the market. Yeah. So I'm so proud of my team that just like how far they've come and figuring this out and the product we've developed, we're super happy with. We're very, very proud of. We also were working on figuring out e-commerce and how to ship gourmet donuts nationally. And we've just launched kind of a beta version of that. that I'm really proud of too. So it's been a really hard couple years, but it was also kind of like that kick in the pants to force you like, this is it, figure it out or you're not going to survive. And now the company's better for it. This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I'd like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to share? Don't give up. I don't know. It's hard to say that because with something like the pandemic, there is so much stuff that wasn't in people's control, like whether or not you had access to stimulus money or, you know, if your section of town got really hit and run down or from work from home. And I feel like so many business operators that had good businesses and they were good models and they were smart people, like they just got dealt a raw shake, but that wasn't in your control. So I guess what I'm trying to say is like, don't judge your personal success and failure on things that are not in your control. Like all we can do is just do the best with the cards that we're dealt with. And sometimes the best move is to fold, but that doesn't mean that I'm a bad player or that I am a failure. It just means that I tried to make the best of the cards I got dealt and it didn't work, but that's not a reason to give up or take it personally. 
That's Katie Pope. For more on Blue Star Donuts, visit bluestardonuts.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.